27, verses 45 through 50. And before we get there, I want to ask you a, a question. Have you and your parents, we all have parents, believe it or not, we all do. Have you and your parents always seen eye to eye? No. Okay. When have you not seen eye to eye? For me, it had to do with a lot of like punishment stuff because like I, I, I am a wooden spoon survivor. I am. I am. But, but I did not always see eye to eye because, because there was one time that I got spanked and I remember that I did not do what I got spanked for and that was, I mean, I did not have a due process of law for me to clear my good name before the wooden spoon made its way to me. So, I mean, some of us, that's what it takes. And uh, maybe on a deeper note, for some of us, your parents didn't use the wooden spoon right. For some of us, there's been some wounds. And if there's one thing I know, it's that the, those closest to you can cut you the deepest. You see, to be hurt by someone, to be rejected by somebody, you, you first kind of have to have a love and respect for that person for you to really feel anything. This is kind of abstract right now, but bear with me. But do you understand? As in, if a stranger walks up to you and just punches you in the face, you're probably just going to be like, well, that was weird. But if it comes from somebody close to you, it's going to mar something. And the most important people in your lives are your parents. Why? Not because they're your parents, but because they are a reflection of God himself. God chooses to reveal himself to us as a dad. And there is so much weight that is held from being a father. And many of you have had a terrible, terrible view of God instinctively because of the way that somebody called your father treated you. And I'm here to tell you that even though there was a clash in the Holy Family in, in God the Father and God the Son, even though there was something that seems to have taken place between them that we'll see in Matthew 27, 45, that God is a good, good father and we can know that but there's something that happens in Matthew 27 verse 45 or through 50 that really just makes you question what was going on at least it did me the events leading up to Matthew 27 we see in Matthew 26 was was the Jewish government Jesus's own people the government of Jesus' own nation was out to get him. There was a secret bounty on Jesus' life. He was a wanted man, wanted dead, preferably, but they couldn't kill him publicly without the Roman government because the Jews were too afraid of an uproar. And if they had an uproar within the Jewish government, the Rome would come in and just take away their, their right to govern themselves. They were afraid of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus, but yet Jesus did not ask the question yet. Even though his own people forsook him and rejected him, he did not ask God a question in Matthew 27. Furthermore, Jesus, the night before, had just an unbelievable, earnest prayer time with his dad. The Garden of Gethsemane and the, and the prayers that he offered to the Lord. His prayers of desperation saying, God, if it be possible... 
knowing full well, Jesus had already prophesied his death at this point, knowing full well what is coming to him, he says, God, if it's possible, just let it go. If it's possible, give me another way. Give me another way because this is not going to be pleasant for me. A son requesting of his dad. By the way, and this son is no bad son. This son spent every waking minute of his life looking at his dad and looking at the way other people saw his dad and correcting all of the false views of his dad and proving to everyone that he came across through miraculous teachings, miraculous works of healings and saying, God loves you. He's like a dad. By his spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. That's how Jesus talked about his dad. But yet, we have something that happens that just makes me question all of that. Now, don't worry. I know he's a good father, and we're not going to refute that whatsoever. But there is something crazy that takes place. Uh, Furthermore, in Matthew 26, Judas, his top 12 best friend, betrays Jesus, is the one that hands him over to the government. Then we see, furthermore, that Peter, Jesus' very best friend, totally turns his back on him, denies even knowing the man. I mean, that alone would make me not be happy if my best friend just was like, I don't know him. Because what was going on, Jesus was brought before a court case, kind of an illegal court case, that was basically the media versus Jesus. You've all seen the media and what they do to people. They were there with Jesus, condemning Jesus. There was a court case between Jesus and the people, and the court decided in the people's favor. And the sentence was to be condemned. With his condemnation, brought severe beatings, caused the skin to be ripped off of his flesh, his bones to be ripped out of joint, his beard to be pulled out, a crown of thorns placed onto his head that penetrated into his skull. Isaiah, it tells us, he wasn't even recognizable as a man. And we turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're in the series Q&A, questions Jesus asked, and many of them were directed at teaching men, but this one was directed to God. It's the only question I know of that was directed to his father. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, as in even my God, he says my God twice to prove that this is my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. The accounts of Luke and John tell us what he said with this cry. He cried out, it is 
finished. Likely coughing up blood as he said it. Terrible, terrible scene. But he said, it is finished. And then what's even more important, Matthew says, and yielded up his spirit, the end of verse 50. The account of Luke and John also tell us that when he yielded up his spirit, his words were, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He questioned why God was forsaking him. But he said, I trust you with my spirit. You've all been through some dirt. You have, I am sure, all been through some dirt. But my goodness, do we trust God like Jesus trusted God? In your worst times, have your worst moments brought you to question God and just leave your questions and leave your spiritual life based on your questions? Jesus asked a question, but he never lost trust, and we're going to look at that more. In this question, the main verb is obviously the forsaken word. Um, and, and the answer to the question, I'll give you right off the bat, it's a little abstract at first, but it'll come together. The answer to the question is in Matthew 27, 43, when the people around him said, as he's on the cross, he trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he desires or delights in him. Second answer, second thing that answers the question. And just remember these, because we're coming back to them at the end. Right before Jesus asked this question, he was pierced in his hands and his feet. Last one, remember this as well. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. That might not make sense for now, but it will. So back to this forsaken word. You know, th- this this sermon for me is a tough one. Um, I I have I have struggled with that feeling. I have struggled with not being consumed by this fact that that Jesus is alluding to his forsakenness, and it has it just really blows my mind. But God has proven that he is good, and I stand before you today, hopefully, with something that will help you in the forsakenness of Jesus. Um, Guys, we're going to look at Isaiah 53 to further talk about the forsakenness of Jesus. I'm going to start in 52, verse, verse 13. You know, we talked about this forsaken thing in our small group a little bit, and it was, it was actually really cool. The conversation led to a lot of different things, and we talked, and it was good, and it was all good conversation. Um, but, and there's one thing that we have to realize about the first thing about this forsakenness is that this, this is not like a fake forsakenness. This is a real, legit forsakenness. Like, there was a break between God and His Son, a real, awful break. We cannot water this down. And I know that this does not look good. Hey, follow a God that, that crushed his son. But we can't, we can't water down what happened. Because when you water down things that God did, you, first off, you cut them off. He will, in due time, explain himself for everything that he has done. 
He claims to be perfect. He is perfect. It's our job to trust him until he helps us see, indeed, that he is good and that he is a good, good father and a perfect father, worthy of being an example to us earthly fathers. So why was he forsaken? Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we'll read all of 53 as well. Talking about Jesus here, written six or seven hundred years before Jesus went to the cross. Behold, my servant, Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Boy, there are so many different ways to think about high and lifted up. Because he was first lifted up high on a tree. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, being Jesus, meaning his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. We couldn't even tell whether it was a human corpse up there, what was going on. Somehow he uttered words that were audible to the people around him, and luckily we have it recorded so that we can look and see what happened on Mount Calvary. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty, still talking about Jesus, and this is, it kind of blows me away hearing some of this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. People didn't follow Jesus because he was the best looking guy. People didn't follow Jesus because he was an earthly king. He, he was no earthly king. He was no one that we would have said, boy, there's, there's Brad Pitt. He's got it figured out. But what was he? Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How many, how many or how often do we think about Jesus as a man of sorrows? Guys, this, this pulpit and the, the pulpit all across America is filled with sermons about Jesus that wants you to be happy, healthy, rich, and prosperous, and, and all these nasty, you know, nice things. And don't get me wrong, those are good things. And Jesus does want those things. But you fail to see a com more complete picture of God if that's all that you know. A man of sorrows. As one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. I know 4 through 6 is where we're going to really answer the question, why was Jesus forsaken? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. As in upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why was Jesus, Jesus forsaken? Last phrase of verse 6. The iniquity, the sin of us all. Guys, scientifically, scientifically, if any of you here had never sinned, you would not die. Things, and I'm not getting into what, who's just and who's not just, but all evils, all diseases have stemmed, all everything that ages men comes from sin. And we are all guilty. And we all will die. But Jesus would never have died. If Jesus was never murdered and allowed to be murdered, he would have never died. It was prophesied that he will, his body will not see decay. He would never have died. It didn't matter how badly he was beaten. It didn't matter how much skin he had left on him. It didn't matter whether or not there were more thorns in his brains than blood. Jesus would not have died. God, the Almighty, would have kept his heart beating, would have kept his brain functioning. But what happened when Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Death was going to be experienced. And that death was only made possible by your sin and by my sin. No death would have ever came to Jesus. He'd still be here with us today. And all of us would not have a price paid for us yet. But Jesus was forsaken because of our sin. Something, something about sin. You know, we get the question a lot. Well, if I'm a Christian, can I still do this? Well, if, you know, if I'm a Christian, you know, can I be you know, gay, or can I, you know, be drunk, or can I be addicted to drunk, or like, can I do, the, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? Can I, can I still sin and be a Christian? Let, let me redirect your question. There's a man on a shape like you see there, with his beard ripped out, thorns in his head, the skin off his body, and he went there willingly, Trusting his dad because of your sin. So your question isn't, can I do this and be a Christian? Your question is, Jesus, how long can you stay there? Because it's my sin that's putting you there. I hope that we never have the question, can I do this and still be a Christian? I hope we have the question, how can we respect that the most? How can we love and cherish what was done on Mount Calvary the most? It's not about you. We'll get to what's all about you in a minute. But it's not all about what you can do and your desires. But it is also about you. We'll get to that furthermore. Continue in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Guys, in John, we see that when Jesus, when Jesus was being arrested, when he opened his mouth and just said, I am he, and the entire battalion, the entire regiment that came out to get him fell on their, on their, on their rump. Jesus, just saying, I am he, caused everybody to just pass, like, fall down. Jesus himself said, do you not realize I could call 12 armies of angels and they would be here in a split second and wipe everybody out? But he didn't open his mouth because when Jesus opens his mouth, stuff happens. And he stayed silent. What did he tell the king or the uh, Caesar or Pilate? The guy that was judging the case between Jesus and the people. He said, the king said, do you not understand that I have power to clear you and power to condemn you? And Jesus didn't pull the I am he card again. He just said, you don't have any power except what's been given you from above. And you will answer for that. He was silent. Why was he silent? Because he was in agreement with God's plan. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. That's Joseph of Arimathea who went and bought the corpse of Jesus and had him properly buried, sealed the tomb, so that we all may know by Roman government, which was the strongest government, edict, that it was covered. The tomb was sealed. And although he had done no violence, Jesus had never done no violence except for the I am he card, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Verse 10. If, if you really thought God was like sane, verse 10 will blow your mind. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Another way of putting, it, putting this is that God's pleasure was to crush his son. Do you realize what's going on here? We have a father who is saying that I have planned and I will be pleased in the crucifixion of my son. I am a dad. I love Corbin. It's hard to swallow this one. Why did it please God to crush Jesus. Jonathan Edwards used to talk in Sinners of the Hands of an Angry God. He used to talk about hell and, and how, how terrible the lake of fire was and how we were dangling like a spider with a web over the flame of hell just waiting to be fallen. But for God's pleasure, for God's pleasure, we didn't go to hell. Because what is hell? Hell is the worst place than the cross. How does that make sense? So here's how it makes sense. Jesus took a punishment from God. And God gave Jesus the punishment so that God could save all of us. It's like God looking, it's like me looking at, at Corbin, my son. Runs around here like crazy after service. It's like me looking at him as he's begging me all night, Daddy, Daddy, don't. Dad, don't do this. 
Dad, can't, can't there be another way? Can't there be another way? Please? God the Father says, sorry. You have to. You have to for the rest of the family because the rest of the family can't do what only you can do. And Jesus said, okay, I'll go. What, what brought Jesus into an agreement with this awful tragedy, the greatest tragedy in human history, the murder of God's son? Further on in verse 10, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. When Jesus is on the cross making the offering, the ultimate offering for our guilt, for our iniquity, for our shame, he shall see his offspring. Who's, who's his offspring? Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and from him we are all spiritually born. So what what brought Jesus into the will of the Father? He was never out of it, but what, what allowed him to stay at peace with God while being crucified? It was his offspring. Who is his offspring? That's you and that's me. All the way up the hill, Jesus saw you and saw me. And he didn't look at you and say, I'm doing this so that you can keep sinning. I'm doing this so you can still give me a reason to be up here. I'm doing this that we may have peace. And I'm doing this because if I don't do this, there's something worse that's coming to you. There's something worse than the cross. And it's called hell. And it lasts forever. Say, isn't isn't that an overreaction? You've lost it. That's, that's not right. What I did isn't that bad. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, Jesus did the whole don't hate your brother thing and, you know, the whole stealing thing and all this. Thing. I can, I can, you know, I'm not that bad. It's not like I deserve an eternity in hell. And you know what? I'll give that one to you. Breaking the law might not. But here is what I know. If you took my son, and your fathers before you took my son, you put nails in his hands, you put nails in his feet, and you put crown of thorns on his head, and you ripped the skin off his flesh, my response to you will not be a good one. Hell is so bad a place. That if just one person in this room, if we all knew of one person in this room that was definitely on their way there, we would have nothing but pity to show for them. Paul says that Christians should be pitied by the world if everything that we believe is false. And I kind of want to flip the script. Because if what we believe is true, and hell is a real place, we will be way too concerned with pitying those who don't know how to spend eternity with Jesus.
But what do they see instead? Do they come to church and do they see somebody who's just privy enough to information leading to eternal life? Do they see an elect elitist group that knows how to behave and knows how to get it together? Or do they see a compassion from people who loved a man of sorrows so much so that they care more than anything that nothing bad comes to them and heaven awaits. Guys, Jesus didn't die so we could debate divisive arguments. Guys, Jesus came and he died so that we could spend eternity with him and avoid the wrath of God. So here is, here is the cardinal sin. Here is how hell is righteous. I don't even think I would look to the law for it. Matthew 27, 25 says, the people, the crowd that was murdering Jesus, after the Pilate had washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, the crowd together responded, this is a good thing, basically. His blood be on us and on our children. His murder be on us and on our children. I am one of those children. And the wrath of God remained on me until I sided with Jesus. Until I told him, okay, that wrath was heading my way. Where was the wrath of God? When did it come out? They killed his son. And we are all living, breathing, working jobs to bless ourselves and our families. Where is the wrath from the murder of God's son? Guys, I know that this isn't going to be on the news, and this is not the coolest sermon in the world, but you have to know this. Hell is a real place. We can't let a day go by. We cannot let a day go by without thinking about what's going to happen to the people that we're too embarrassed to talk to Jesus about, talk about Jesus to. Heaven and hell should be on our minds every single day. Thinking about heaven will correct many, many problems between Christians. Just think about any problem you've ever had with a Christian. Think about living with them for a billion years, and it'll probably just pass away. Not a big deal. Get over it, Christians. Stop debating. Stop arguing. Look at heaven and hell. Who's going with you, and who's going to be tormented forever? Righteously so. I'm a finite being. If you slaughter my son, I will do whatever I can finitely do to you to get my vengeance upon you. God is an infinite being. He judges in the infinite. He judges in the eternal. Do not fall subject to his wrath. I brought up Matthew 27, 43. Talking about Jesus' question, why have you forsaken me? And yes, Jesus was alluding to the fact that he was forsaken. But I want you, if you could, turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 
there's a reason that Jesus spoke in a different language. There's a reason we have this odd sounding Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. It's in both references to what he said. Why? Because it was a different language. That's why they kept it in the same language. Everything else was written in Greek. This was Hebrew. The Old Testament Bible, Psalms 22, was written in Hebrew. Many, if not all, of the people murdering Jesus involved in the court case would know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, because the first line, which is also normally called the title of a psalm, the first line in the title, would sound like, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was questioning, yes, but he was also pointing or he wasn't questioning as in a lack of trust. This is not like my little brother when I asked to borrow his phone. And he didn't trust my motive for borrowing his phone. Because he just didn't trust me and I wasn't that good of a person. So I understand. He was righteous in questioning me. Jesus was not questioning God in the same way. He was pointing out a forsakenness that took place on our behalf. But he was also, with his last breath, trying to get a message out to the people killing him. And he was trying to just say, look at Psalm 22. Why? Because in verse 8, David talks about what will happen is that people will say he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's exactly what Matthew recorded the people saying about Jesus right before he asked this question and alluded to this psalm. He just fulfilled the prophecy that was written by David in Psalm 22. Furthermore, same psalm, verse 16, section B, they have pierced my hands and feet. What was the second thing I told you to remember? They have pierced his hands and feet. He just fulfilled this. I can count all my bones. Verse 17, they stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, Matthew 27. It was in Matthew. Verse 18 in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus saw his circumstances and saw what was going on around him, and it reminded him of what was written about him in Psalm 22, and his main point was not questioning his father. We know that because in the very next line he says he's trusting his father with the spirit. What Jesus is really getting at is trying to tell the people around him that I'm it. I'm the answer. That's Jesus' response. And what will your response be? Worship team can start making their way up. In Revelation chapter 20, when this is all over, there's no more drama. There's no more news. The window of grace is shut the window of grace is available in this life and this one alone. At the time of Revelation 20, the window to be saved is shut. John tells us in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Earth is now irrelevant. Anything you did here on earth, whatever you built here on earth, whatever you staved up here on earth, whatever 401k plan you got, it's irrelevant. You didn't take it with you, and it doesn't matter. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, all those who died after Christ. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, all those who died before Christ. And they judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Your deeds have been recorded. They're written down. There's many books, this verse tells us. Many books. Just because you didn't, and nobody saw you, just because you haven't told any of us, doesn't mean it didn't happen. There's one who knew it. And he's written it down, because he's a good judge. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's, there's two types of people. There's people who have everything they've ever done written about them. And there's a second type of people who just have their name written in the right book. Are you full of excuses? You can't excuse your way through your entire life. But you would have to, because you would have to have a good excuse for everything you've ever done. It's written in many books. But what Jesus did allowed God to press delete and just save your name in the book of life. I want to leave you with something dear to me. Hey, buddy. You have no idea how much God loves you. No idea. People have to know. Yes, the wrath is there and it will be there. But his love is so important. I could not imagine. I couldn't imagine.